Welcome to the Slava Connection. I am Tom. And I am Matt. And you guys are about to catch an episode of Matt and Tom. We're doing this about every week. Today we talked about Alexander Dugan and Eurasianism. And, you know, we give a little background, we give a little bio, but these are two pretty malleable, flexible ideas. Like, I'd say Dugan is an idea, right? Would you agree? I, I would agree. We touched on the history of Dugan's ideas and Eurasianism, kind of going back to older mm-hmm. philosophers, but then really took it to, to today and talked about his life and his work and whether or not it's influential right. or not, but tried to kind of get into as much detail mm-hmm. as we could about its origins and its future. Yeah, and we think it's important at the end of the day. Pick out what you can and hope you enjoy it. You're listening to The Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Hey listeners, welcome to The Slavic Connection. I'm here with Tom Rinquist. Glad to be here, Matt. I thought we would talk about Eurasianism and Duganism and... It's an idea that I know you and I talk about fairly often yes. because we're fairly, fairly interested. Where do we start? Yeah, it's a difficult idea because so ideally, when you're, the more theoretically you're talking, the more you want to define terms. There's no bullet point. There's no bumper sticker for Duganism or Eurasianism. But let's try to be as broad as possible to start, and we'll get a little more narrow once we go on. So as far as I know, Eurasianism starts with this guy, uh, Lev Gumilov, right? Sure. And he was this guy who had this theory of kind of, I, what's what's it exactly called? Geog- the way it's, it was all about the way geography um, sorted, the way the geography kind of predetermined mm-hmm. uh, certain national cultures and certain kind of the development right. of, of states. And, and he was writing, he, I think he died right after the collapse. So he was writing in the 1970s and the 60s. And he was the kind of author who was looking at a map, looking at people interacting with each other and looking for patterns. Right. I think that is probably the best origin of the idea of Eurasianism. And there's definitely a higher emphasis on Christianity, orthodoxy and religion right. in the nexus of this idea. Right. Um, and then that, that's kind of the Russian perception of Eurasianism. But it's important to note for our listeners that the first use of Eurasianism actually comes from this guy named Trubetskoy. Mm-hmm. And that was amongst people of the Russian immigrant community in the 1920s, mm-hmm. the people who had left kind of the, the, the former you know, Russian imperial intelligentsia who uh, left the fledgling Soviet Union, and they had their own ideas about how, in another universe, how Russian society should have or could have continued right. uh, uh, to to develop. It was an affront on the idea of communism as being just another form of Western subversion that they didn't have control of. Right. And, and so and that so, has reached a logical, not conclusion, but a lot of growth over the years. Right. And so now let's kind of jump forward to... Eurasianism and it's it's more mo- it's modern contemporary I guess I should say forms. Uh, this guy Dugan is the one who really kind of co- took these ideas mm-hmm. under his mantle, and in the 1990s he kind of rebirthed these ideas into the 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 very main uh, Russian discourse. Mm-hmm. He was extremely popular in the 90s as he is uh, today. And so I was wondering if you could just kind of talk a little bit about Dugan and his, you know, his personal history and then how that, how his personal life leads us to the revival of Eurasianism that we sure, see Sure. Let's do a bit on Dugan. So I guess his only real job in a lot of, he is an author, like that is the most specific thing that he does. He's written 30 books, I think, 
probably five or six have been immensely popular, a lot of which are just sort of publicized and no one knows what to do with them. He was, um, I think he had a sort of fake faculty position at Moscow State University and was ousted after the Ukrainian invasion. Um, so he's never really been this de jure influencer in Russia, though he's often rumored to be, um, although that's kind of completely unclear what he does. Do you know more about what his role was bef- in um, the Soviet Union? Yeah, I mean, I do. I know that in the Soviet Union, he uh, he was a little bit of an outcast mm-hmm. in the sense that right, he didn't like the, the Bolshevik, uh, or he, I mean, he didn't, I guess I should say he didn't. Uh, there's certain things that he liked about it, but he didn't participate and he was not an active supporter of the Soviet kind of the Soviet project. And he would spend his time in the library looking or, or basically acquiring either searching them for them himself or acquiring kind of in Samizdat forms or um, brought in from the West. Western philosophers, people like Heidegger, and then mm-hmm. reading them painstakingly on microfilm right. under a uh, under a microscope, mm-hmm. and uh, which is which is horrible for your that's eyes. That's the Masha Gessen anecdote. Yeah, right? and that's this, this is the Ma, the Masha Gessen anecdote from her most recent book, which is called "The, the Future Is History." And no, and I, and I think it's I mean it's an important story because I think it helps. I mean it's uh, her, it's important to understand the, the psyche of the of, right. of the guy behind mm-hmm. the ideas and how it kind of formed him. And so he's doing this really just kind of painstaking, isolating, physically like squinting for all that amount of time is just physically tiring. Mm-hmm. And, but he, but he's doing, he's reading these really deep texts and thinking that he's getting a, a lot of really important ideas out of them. And then as the Soviet union starts to collapse, he's kind of one of these people who says, Oh, I'm a, I was an, a non-Soviet intellectual. Now I, I should Mm -hmm. therefore be one of the thought leaders for, um, for for the new Russia. And that's, that's when he really hit his most active phase of, of of writing. And that research style totally shows in his writing because it's immensely referential with actually no footnotes. If you look at his pages, he'll mention, Smith, Ilian, however, however many theories he could possibly fit, you know, between but, the margins. Right. But you get the sense that it's it's more like name dropping than yes. him r- really citing specific doctrinal or, you know, ideas of these people. It's the Hollywood cocktail party equivalent of political theory. Right. Right. Oh, that's I, I hadn't heard that one. That's nice. I like that. And we should say, I mean, just like this guy isn't just some writer. I think it's very important. I've, you know, I've read the contention, the idea that he is probably the most influential intellectual in Russia today. Do you think that's an exaggeration or would you agree with that? That's an interesting question. Influential in the broadest that caveat's very important. Um, That's an interesting question. A difficult question to answer. I think I think that he I think that he is influential in certain circles, but probably calling it's difficult to get a, a perception of kind of influence in, in today's Russia because it is, it, I mean, just like here and a lot of other places now, there really is kind of a stratification mm-hmm. of society and a fragmentation. And so people get expo- who get exposed to certain beliefs when they're young, they you know tend to hold sure. on to, to those beliefs. But what I will, what, yeah, what I will say is that among people of certain ideological predispositions, he, yes, he is, he is very popular and, 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 uh, it's important to note of people of various generations. So mm-hmm. it, he, you know, he even has young supporters that kind of a young generation of supporters who continue to, to, to kind of support and spread his works. Sure. And I don't think you can be a lukewarm Dugan supporter. You're either totally against him or you really believe in what he's saying. And he's, he's really popular in Greece. I believe yeah. that's Arctos is his biggest publisher outside of, of Russia where they publish all the English right. versions of his right. books. And if I'm not mistaken, his, or er, 
I think Dugan's wife is uh, his his translator into English, yes. and or, or, or maybe Richard Spencer's wife. Oh, ri- excuse me, that's what it is. Um, English translator. That's what it is. Richard yes. Spencer, who's a, a neo Nazi, mm-hmm. um, is his translator, which is very telling. We ruined my haircut. <laughs> um, which, right? I think is very telling about what the way his ideas are interpreted in the West. Yeah. So let's get into what this guy's actually saying, right? Yeah, let's do it. Um, Which book? So we start with uh, fourth political theory or the his geopolitics I, textbook. I, I mean, as far as I understand, I think that you are more well read on Dugan, like Sadly. of Dugan's actual text, than I am. I mean, I know, I, I know, I mean, I I know a lot of facts about him about the lore just because because of you know hearing about him in person and things like that. And what when what I do know is I think that it's the the you know the, the foundations of geopolitics. Um, is is a book that really does get talked about, including right. in academic circles in Russia, and in just kind of from you know from a, a very broad basis, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of people. And I and there's a really interesting thought in it, and it's really I think considered his most one of the most important pieces of his of mm-hmm. his kind of 90s, which I guess we is now his early work. And it basically, well, it, it says a lot of things, but what I think what, what's important about it for scholars today is that he basically has this moment where he admits the very cynical underpinnings of his ideas. And this is really what differentiates his ideas about Eurasianisms from the, or or why he, why he, why some call him a neo-Eurasianist versus the original Eurasianist we cited at the beginning of the show, which is that there's this very cynical Mm -hmm. underpinning uh, to it, which is that Eurasianism we need Eurasianism because it's the most effective way to stand up for our realist national interests as Russia today. Right. And so the the conservatism and the kind of traditionalist ideas and, and religion, these are really just, we are just cynically, we don't sincerely believe in these ideas. We are mm-hmm. cynically appropriating them to further realist geopolitical mm-hmm. Uh, ends and so that yeah. that's the step that really makes him different from the other year agents. It's very like uh, esoteric ideology, but that's often defined. Like someone like Dmitry Trenin would just say, like this is pragmatism. This isn't anything more than that. But you can't just be pragmatic and say you're pragmatic. I think you need this complicated ideological web for it to be useful. Right. So let's just let's give a little bit on the fourth political theory and we'll talk in how that fits into Eurasianism because, like we said, that is not a simple thing. It's a large umbrella. Um, so for political theory that came out, I think 2007, 2008, and it's kind of his magnum opus. Um, and so the idea of it, the fourth political theory is literally just that he says there has been three, um, and they are essentially communism, fascism, and capitalism. And there are different caveats within those. Um, and his point is none of those have worked. Uh, communism had the gulag, fascism had concentration camps, capitalism had the atomic bomb. So there has to be fourth political theory. That is as, you know, sort of instructional as it gets. If you read his writing, it is, as we talked about referential, it is impossibly referential. You can't follow what he's actually saying. (laughs) Um, Because if you know anything about the theorists or you don't know anything about the theorists, it's equally confusing. So the point is to to present these ideas um, in this very confusing, like, um, intellectual web. And 
it's sort of hypnotizing. Yeah. Because you get the contentions he makes are so powerful. And so like there's a, there's a clarity in how insane it is because it seems like he really believes in what he's saying. Right. Um, in like, in terms of like structurally, I mean, can you compare him to other philosophers you might've read in your life or something like that difficult? Because I know that, you know, in, in philosophy, there's certain distinctions between extremely systematic writers, mm -hmm. like somebody like Kant and then, I don't know, somebody, somebody like a Heidegger who mm -hmm. has a much more flowing, um, almost like stream of consciousness style, philosophy style. I don't just, I, I'm wondering if you made any distinctions along those lines. Well, he's almost in the like realm of like a poet philosopher, like a Sartre, or like a Camus or something, because there isn't sort of that pure um, didactic element. Like when I read someone like Hobbes or I'm reading Hegel, there's like, I understand what you're, you're proposing. Like, I understand what you're getting at. Um, and then when you read the other ones, I have to look beneath it to understand what you're actually doing. He's in between those two areas. Okay. Like, okay. he wants this to be, uh, he wants it to be prescriptive, but he also needs it to be sort of fictional. Right. Because I think that's how he gets... Right. And it's so like a power from complication. And so and now we bring up the, the, the fiction point. I, I, I'd like for you to talk a little bit about just this idea of how his ideas of Eurasianism really can kind of be copy and pasted. And he basically, if you look at the flag of it, there's this famous symbol that he uses, uh, which is like, I believe it's like a spoke, but it has arrows mm -hmm. coming out in all directions, yes. uh, which is an idea that kind of symbolizes about how each people, each nation, although it's not always nations, but each, uh, uh, group can create its own meaning and its meaning mm -hmm. is, is a, an internally uh, kind of hermetically sealed right. uh, system that is only in understandable and defined and interpretable to its own people, which is a very kind of postmodernist mm -hmm. point. And so he kind of says, look, all, all of these different people should uh, have their own versions of right. my philosophy. Yeah. So it's sort of an elaboration of like ethnicity being a subgroup of culture and being a subgroup of civilization. And there are separate webs of those that they can only connect, but they can't actually totally understand each other. So he really advocates for like this polar idea of what the world should look like, that the Atlanticists, the Americans, the, and he includes sort of Australians and Brits and sort of an Anglo um, unit, that they have their pull, that the Europeans should have their pull, that the East Asians should have their pull and the Eurasians have their own. And these people can do whatever they want. There should just be no interaction between them, to, despite only, to, you know, there should be macroeconomic interaction, something like that. But there shouldn't be this, like, dip diplomatic idea. Um, it should be sort of everyone for themselves, and that will prevent any conflict. Right. And can we also touch a, on a little bit this idea that's expressed in the in the Eura Eurasianism video about how it's the Atlanticist, mm -hmm. I don't know if that's what it's called, but the Atlantis, Atlanticist culture, um, the Atlanticist coastal culture sure. has a very interesting feature of it, which is that it's the only kind of one of these groups that mm -hmm. thinks it can kind of infiltrate and then start changing the other right. major cultural, continental cultural groups. So we're getting into a good deal of how Dugan has sort of influenced Eurasianism in general. So that idea we talked about, which is more geography, he's made into this larger idea that it's not just geography, but there's like a completely intractable separation between the rest of the world that arises from this geography. That people from sea-bearing nations, which he calls the Lassocratic, which I think is solely to put a complicated word to it, to put a barrier of entry <laughs> yeah, to it. That yeah, just means yeah. you are by water. That these countries that have waterways, that have ports, are naturally going to be more cooperative and want free trade and want open markets 
because that's how their society is built by exchange. Land-bearing countries, that's kind of getting to Kinder's hinterland ideas, heartland ideas. Um, that was never a luxury for them. So to go to a country like Russia and be like, you know, you guys really be like the United States. Um, that's a slight in itself because they develop from totally different paths. So that's just like another sort of outside um, corruption, like like Dugan would say communism was. This is a Western idea that doesn't apply to us. Right. Right. And and so I guess that's where it all ties into ethics, because mm-hmm. now if, if you have this certain ideology in the certain culture, then that means that certain uh, things are, are acceptable in society and then certain things are not. Mm-hmm. Uh, acceptable. Right. And he, he would definitely say there's no absolutes or universal truths right. in society. It's whatever any culture considers to be correct or fair. And no one has any position to question another society and what is fair. <sighs> That's interesting. Um, it also forms what I think Dugan thinks of, you know, the people in Russia, how he explains the the, the Russians who don't necessarily uh, hold his views on, mm-hmm. on Eurasianism. He would probably describe them as uh, youths who have been corrupted by yes. uh, Atlanticist uh, culture, I guess, kind of uh, in, in Russia. In, in Russian, there's this kind of word that's gaining popularity, kind of xenopatriot, which means like a xenopatriot, a patriot hmm. of, a, of another um, country. Interesting. Yes, I mean, that's kind of where the invincibility of his ideas comes from. It's that... Here are some truths, and if you don't believe in that, well, you must have been corrupted by an outside power, by liberalism, by self-determination. And I think he comes up with this idea of, like, ideocracy, not idiocracy, which is a little too close for comfort, (laughs) but ideocracy of sort of the idea that um, a country has to be governed by ideological unity, spiritualism, and just like a specific idea of what your country is. And there's no room for like the self-determination, um, the individualism that comes from liberalism. And I think Russians and the Soviet Union looked to like Italy as this sort of model. And Dugan is like, no, Stalin is the model. Stalin had this correct. He killed too many people, but his ideas were correct. And any idea can fit into his larger framework if it's positioned against America and will increase the chances for a Eurasianist poll to build against America. Right, and the, I think the anti-Americanism is important because it's a, it's something that's expressed by politicians mm-hmm. uh, as well. And so you right, you need the external enemy, you need what you're defining yourself sure. against. And again, if we get back to this idea that Duganism is really just a cynical ploy f- to enact what he thinks is then their realist national interest, well then, oh, who, who do they feel is the biggest um, obstructor to their realist national interest? Oh, the United States, oh, mm-hmm. the superpowers. Right. And so the neo-Eurasianist, Duganist uh, ideology allows for sort of any action, any ally, any effort that will, you know, corrupt America's influence. So that's why Dugan advocates for asymmetric warfare, uh, for cyber attacks, for political disruption. He would support Russia um, funding any, you know, group that is against American interests. That's why the support of Venezuela, Syria, that sort of fits into the Dugan narrative, um, because it's all about it. Like we can't just attack America right now. We need to weaken their influence so that there's an even out power between them. Right. The, the other thing I think we should point out, uh, for our viewers is that Duganism is not necessarily like one of the pillars of Putinism or Certainly Putin's not. ideology. Mm-hmm. And so when we think about Putin, we need to keep in mind that what his, 
endorsement mm-hmm. or non-endorsement of, of, of Putinism is just one of many uh, spokes of kind of Putin's circle and Putin's ideas and the way that Putin kind of runs uh, right. his state. There was a there was a time, I think, earlier in 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 Putin's uh, uh, in Putin's reign where there was this, I know there's this group, I think it's called like Izborsky Club. Mm-hmm. And it's this kind of group of intellectuals who are very kind of Duganist and they were thought to be very influential. But uh, right. more recent history has shown that at the end of the day, these are, are not people who have um, certainly not. influence uh, among uh, among Putin's kind of day, certainly not daily decisions mm-hmm. uh, and, and probably not even strategic. Right. Yeah. I think, And I think that might help Dugan as much as it hurts him. And he's actually come out against Putin a handful of times, never like totally forcefully, but he's, he hasn't been some lackey that is just supporting him at every level. Um, but I think what helps Dugan or why I think at least he is interesting is because he is separate from the actual body of politics in Russia. Cause you don't see these intellectuals that kind of free reign to say whatever they like. That doesn't really fit into the Russian model to a degree. Dugan is kind of on his own sort of. Um, He talks about the center versus periphery. That's a huge part of his ideology. He is everywhere on that, you know, in spades. He can kind of blend between the mainstream, um, the abject parts of society so quickly. And doesn't he have this idea about like, hey, hey, our goal is not to become the center. Our goal is to affect the center from the periphery. It's to make more centers. Yeah. Oh, make more centers. Right. Right. That there should not be a center um, because that is not the natural order of things. There is a way that countries are supposed to align, interact with each other. And the actual, he actually gives a specific end to this of sort of like vertical belts of what the world should look like, where North America is aligned with South America. Europe supports Africa, or they work together in some degree. Eurasianist support, it's from St. Petersburg to India. And then China has its own web, which, you know, he thinks that's a natural, I don't know. But there is sort of a method to Method to the madness, yeah, sure. to use a cliche. Yeah. I think another important thing to point out for our viewers is just to kind of go through the geographic, again, going back to Gumilev and, and these other people, the very geographic realities that help form the ideology, right? So if you imagine Russia as a map in your head, what do we have? So if we start, I, I guess it's more natural to start from west to east mm-hmm. from Europe. And so if you look at if you look at Europe, what's their what's their only kind of flat plain open border it's the it's the big east european plain right where right. there's these plains and forests if you go to the north of that into you know up towards scandinavia you already have uh the 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 barents sea and then mm-hmm. the white sea which are frozen mm-hmm. um not not serviceable really warm water ports except for murmansk at the top and they might be in a decade but we don't know right well they they, they probably will be in a mm-hmm. decade by the end of this podcast then but historically, it was very difficult to to navigate to those places, and so it would, their their trade was severely mm-hmm. hindered by that. Uh, if you and then if you looked kind of to the south of of the western part of Russia, you have the Caucasus Mountains, right, which are right. you know extremely large, tall peaks that are not a place that where you can take army, armies very easily mm-hmm. through them. Now, if we move farther to the east, now what do we have? We have the 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 steppe. The dry steps of the, the places where kind of the Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, and then if we go out further, right, we have the the the, the tundra and the taiga mm-hmm. of 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 Siberia and and the Far East, and then we also have bear in mind the Gobi Desert, which is where Mongolia is, which makes a very natural kind of civil civilizational border between Eurasia and and, the, mm-hmm. and China. 
And then, of course, on the the the, the eastern coast, we have the, the Pacific Ocean, right? Yeah. So you can really see how there's there is only kind of one place through which you can militarily attack Russia, and also where you can kind of easily enter this connect sphere, Russia. connect with mm-hmm. Russia. And that that's that's an idea that I think really says, okay, this is how we're so isolated and insulated, and this is why our culture it's it it it, it spreads various different peoples, right? It's not just about kind of the Russian ethnos; right. it's about all these people, and it's because all of these different people are were part of the same kind of geographic grouping. Mm-hmm. And, it, and essentially, in practice, it looks like the Soviet Union minus the Baltic states of what countries fit into this Eurasian natural order. So this is kind of the truth of that lies in Eurasianism, is that there is this thing that exists, and certain people throughout the time of history have found themselves in it. And they look like each other, their languages are similar, their ideals are similar, there is differences in ideology. But, you know, a ethnogenesis or... or whoever would study that right. would say that those are temporal, that ideologies can change over generations, over Absolutely. decades, that there are much larger truths there. Right. And, and there's also that in Eurasianism would reflect a grouping of that, of all that. However, in Dugan's Eurasianism, Russia is still the power. And he, right. provo- he proposes this sort of masterocracy, I think is the term. Um, I might be adding a syllable there, but I've never actually seen the word in writing before, or I've actually heard it out loud, which is basically that there's no voting, there is no public participation, there's just sort of this groups of technocrats that decide how the country is going to exist based on these ideological truths. It's basically kings. Right, right. And I th- I think that's... I'm not sure how effective it is in the former uh, Soviet republics who are now independent, right? Mm-hmm. But you think about Kazakhstan, even to Turkmenistan and places like Ukraine, these places that are independent, obviously, now. But um, it's clear why this ideology is something they want to push abroad because, right, mm-hmm. they're looking for justifications to, to keep right. these nations in their very mm-hmm. realist kind of spheres of influence uh, in their orbit. Well, it's a very natural idea for we had this power taken away from us, and that doesn't mean that we're going to allow you to win by becoming some liberal republic. That doesn't make sense to them. Um, I mean, we should talk about the actual, what this would look like in policy, what this would look like in, you know, because that's the thing with Eurasianism. You can pick and choose any, you know, any Putin platform, anything that happens. And like, that kind of looks like Eurasianism, but it's a bendable ideology. Right. Right. It's a bendable ideology. Uh, It's certainly uncomfortably to think about what, if, if, a policymaker, if if a high-ranking person in, for example, Russia was a diehard believer of mm-hmm. these ideas, how that foreign policy would look is 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 certainly something that's scary for me to think about. But yeah. if you if you if you if you if you like, we can indulge our our, our our listeners. Well, I mean, the effort to actually be this Eurasianist republic would probably mean like the crumbling of that part of the world. Right. You know, I think there was a report today that said. Russia is, you know, buying more gold. And then the logical conclusion is, oh, they're trying to get off the dollar. This is like the step towards this be, becoming this, you know, unipolar country. And, you know, the 12th largest economy in the world is not going to shift the entire financial flow. Like, this is just not how things right. are going to happen. Right. Um, and even if you were to combine all the economies of all the Eurasianist bloc, who, mind you, are not allies right now, and this is not anything that's ever going to come to fruition, it really acts as just sort of a mentality. 
right. than anything that would ever have any practical use. Right. Um, and I think the next natural, the next logical question is whether if it doesn't have a practical use, does that mean it'll just kind of wither and, and, and fade away slowly? Mm-hmm. Or is this something with legs? Is this something that while it doesn't have a practical use, it It'll, it'll, it'll live on just simply because it's interesting and inspiring to certain well, people. I think you can compare it sort of to just like libertarianism in America. Like there will never be a libertarian president. There will never be, America will never be a libertarian country. But the whatever you pick and choose from libertarianism will form your ideology in some way. Now you might have, um, you might be in the middle on some things and be like, okay, I understand we're running a country. I need to sacrifice some of my views. But it doesn't mean that's a, it, it's part, maybe it's not the motor, um, but it's something involved in the system. And, you know, you would never say, I'm not going to understand libertarianism because there will never be a president that right. subscribes to that. doesn't make, right. that doesn't make maybe sense. Maybe one way to think about it is just kind of this idea of the Overton window and just mm-hmm. kind of put, pushing the dialogue in the, in the policy that's right. discussed in a certain direction, mm-hmm. right? And so if these guys are saying that we need to return the, the territories of the Russian empire, right, then that... That, that's a that's a that's an idea right. that's out there that now has some weight to it. Now people mm-hmm. have to respond to the imposition themselves relative to that idea. And it doesn't matter if the country's no ability to just return countries to under their control, but the fact that those ideas become legitimized or normalized mean that it's important to at least have a working understanding of the impossibilities, but also the realities of them. Yeah, and I, I do say return because it's important to note that these kind of euf- euphemisms are used yeah. amongst Duganists in, in, in Russia because if you, if you said to a Duganist, hey, are you going to return Kazakhstan t- to Russia through like a, a bloody war? They're, mm-hmm. Oh, and they say, no, 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 no. Or are you going to militarily somehow return these right, countries? Right. Are you going to seize them? Are you going to invade them? No, no, you're not going to seize, we're not going to invade, we're going to return, right? Mm-hmm. So there, I think there's this idea that they can somehow use soft power to to get these states to to do what they want without even coercing them kind of right. through some long game like that. And I think that's, you know, they position themselves as the national Bolsheviks or something along those lines, how, which doesn't make, that's basically a contradiction. Um, but saying how, no, we don't want to be the Bolsheviks. We want you to have your own um, autonomy, which the Bolsheviks did. So it's already perjuring itself to a degree, but we just want to return the influence back so that we can give it back to you sort of it's just a bizarre exchange of what yeah. it actually would look like yeah uh, um, absolutely and the national bolshevism that i feel like that that could be also really a whole other episode because mm-hmm. that's a political movement in russia that is you know had certain funny elements to it but really has its own history mm-hmm. and is 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 fascinating in a lot of ways and i think we talk about this further in some different elements but i think we hit a lot of the bolts of you know right. to understand right. this mindset right and right, and I think that it, um, I think I think that it is a mindset that Americans should be kind of mm-hmm. aware and understand its its right. existence. That's 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 the truth as well. All right. All right. Any last words on Dugan? <sighs> I'm trying to think. Um, I think he looks like Alan Rickman with like Rasputin's beard. Yeah. Like, huh. Wow. Oh no. That's wow. Yes. I can that's see, always I been. Can, I can see that. Yes, the, the the beard is 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 pretty thin, but it's it's got some length to it. Yeah, he could use some propecia, I think. He needs a thickening a little bit. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Matt. This was fun. No, thanks for coming on. The views, opinions, and ideas expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Thank you for listening to the Slavic Connection. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information and to subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel.
As always, we invite listener feedback, so please send us your comments. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.